You are listening to episode 156 of This is Type 1. Today I'm talking with John Wilkin, author of The Candy in My Pocket and Residential Design Legend. The bio he sent me had my jaw on the floor with his list of accomplishments and celebrity encounters. What struck me most is how positive he stayed despite numerous health complications related to type 1 diabetes and how he's using his story to show that we can remain optimistic even in the worst of times. John, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm, it's a pleasure to be here. Tell us who, like, who you are, the story of your diagnosis. Did you know anything before it, like before that diagnosis? Any fam- family history? Okay, so I'm John Robert Wilkin. I was diagnosed when I was eight years old. So, of course, I didn't know anything about this disease at the time that my our family doctor told my parents that your son has type 1 diabetes and rush him to the hospital. Do not even go home. That was like three days before Christmas, 1967. I know that you have no idea what that was like back then, but <laughs> that, that, that's when I was diagnosed with it. Is there uh, like any, like, what were the emotions like around that diagnosis for you, both you and your parents? My parents were devastated, like most parents, I think, when they get that news. But what made it so much more traumatic for my parents was that, I mean, in those days, because there wasn't a lot known about type 1 diabetes, the life expectancy for someone with that was much shorter than it is for type 1 diabetics today. So my parents were told in another room that I wouldn't live to see 40. And I mean, that, of course, was quite devastating to them. I was not supposed to hear that. But once I was checked into the hospital and family members came to see me, I mean, they'd be like whispering in my mom's ear. Oh, it's too bad about John. We have to pray, blah, blah, blah. You you know, so. Yeah, that was how our first, uh, what we first learned about diabetes. Okay, so you've you've had it for a while now. Clearly, what are you? What Six are your, years. How many? <laughs> no, I'm teasing you. Six. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot. Long. Fifty-four years. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you're, yeah, I'm still here. I mean, your your age of of type one diabetes has outlived your whole previous life expectancy. So, I mean, that's a win. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. And I've been very fortunate because I have endured a bunch of the complications that are typical for people with type 1 diabetes. I mean, you know, at the time that I was diagnosed, there wasn't a a continuous glucose monitor. There wasn't even an AccuCheck machine to check your blood glucose we would pee in a cup have you heard the story before yeah and i interviewed richard take, Vaughn. You know, the eyedropper and put 25 drops of urine into a test tube and then we would put a blue pill in there not viagra and <laughs> shake it all up and 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 you had to match that color to a little chart on the side of the bottle to see the range that your blood glucose was. It never gave you an exact number. It said, okay, you're between 80 and 120 or 120 and 160 or 160 and 200 or 200 and 240 or above. And, th- and 
There was no such thing as counting carbs so that you would know how much insulin to take. You just took some. And so as a result of that, my control as a kid was terrible. Yeah. And as a result of my terrible control, I had a lot of the complications that are associated with diabetes. Okay. Yeah. So living with, clearly living with diabetes has changed a lot over the years. So yes. Can you tell us a little bit more about what it was like when you were first diagnosed with it versus now? I mean, beyond the peeing in a cup to test your blood sugar, because that I can't even imagine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I hated that. I mean, I cannot tell you how much I hated that. But what was it like as a little kid? I and you know, I was raised a Catholic and I went to Catholic school. Until third grade, my third week, my third day, the third hour, probably, I got kicked out of Catholic school. But you begin to question all these things, even as a little kid. Why is God doing this to me? What 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 are my friends going to think at school? All these things. And so I, at, a, at eight years old, started hating God, thinking Aww. that it was all his fault. So that was what it was like living with that. And, and, and I was miserable. Yeah. And I thought, you know what? If I'm going to be miserable, I'm going to make everyone else miserable too. Aww. And guess what? I was really good at that. <laughs> and I did. I made, I made my entire family miserable. And then things started to change in my household. And I realized that, you know what? I cannot do this anymore. It's not fair to the rest of my family. And I stopped. Actually, what happened was several years later, like five years later, I had, my mother had a child who was my youngest sister. There was 11 years difference between us. And then two years after that, she got sick the way I got sick. She had the flu. She was throwing up. Blah, blah, blah. And I thought, oh my God, she can't have diabetes. And I, and I prayed so hard. I said, you know, I, I promised to be a good kid. I would not make my family miserable. I would try to take better care of myself, not really knowing what that meant. I just did not want my sister to become a diabetic. By the time I was 13 years old, I was already good at it. As bad as my care was, it really didn't bother me anymore. I was out there having fun. Mm -hmm. And it turned out my sister did not have it. Okay. So I was really happy about that. And that was like the beginning of my life as a teenager. Okay. And what do you do as a teenager? You do all the things you're not supposed to do. <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, Well, I did. I was the oldest in my family, so I broke all the rules and made it much easier for my brother and my two sisters. But at the time I went to high school, my grandma got a job in the school cafeteria so she could take care of me and feed me lunch. So for everybody who's just listening, he did the whole finger quote thing, take care of me. <laughs> oh, because they're not seeing that. Okay. So my 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 grandma, she would be like I'd be like, hey grandma. Can I have a chocolate chip cookie? And she's like, no, you're not supposed to have those things. You dare to have that. And I'd be like, but grandma, I got gym after lunch. <laughs> and she's like, oh, okay. She's not like, well, here, have two. This one's broken. 
<laughs> Grandmas are the I best. Eat, I would eat too. I, I oh my god. I mean, and I still like chocolate chip cookies. I have to admit, the soft ones, not the hard ones. <laughs> I won't eat the hard ones if they're in our house. I also, you know, like most kids, you know, you go out with a bunch of friends and you try drinking, which was no good for a diabetic either, and that stayed with me throughout my teenage years. But I graduated high school. I was 16 years old. I went for three years. I worked in the professional theater. Well, I apprenticed in the professional theater, working like with Shaja and Eva Gabor and Leslie Corona and Louis Jordan and Sid Caesar and Imogene Coke. I know you don't know who they are. I know <laughs> Shaja Gabor. They, <laughs> like the right? only one. Because she lived to be 100. But she had both legs chopped off, if you didn't know that. I did not. Yeah. Got all the good. I know all the good information about all <laughs> And then since she's doing Imogene Coke, had a television show called Show of Shows. And they were comedians. And, oh, my God, I loved both of them dearly. And he gave me some good advice. And she gave me a, a very meaningful hug one night because I screwed up on the props and instead of giving her smelling salts, because Sid Caesar acted as if he passed out on stage, I gave her a chicken leg. <laughs> and she had to wave the chicken leg <laughs> under his nose. And I thought for sure when the play was over that that was like my last night, you know. <laughs> and she comes in, comes in backstage with this chicken leg. And she's like, who gave me the chicken leg? And I, I had to walk to the front. And I'm like, I did. And she come over to me and she puts her arms around me. She's like, oh, my God, I loved that. It was brilliant. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I didn't do it intentionally. It was an accident. She's like, it doesn't matter. Go with it. It was brilliant. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so after we would get done working in the theater, which was like 1130 at night by the time we cleaned it all up, with my other cohorts who worked there, we would go out and we would order a shrimp cocktail with cocktail sauce. The shrimp was okay. It was the cocktail sauce that was the killer and a glass of wine. I mean, like we were all of 16 years old and that was no good. So fast forward to how you live life today with diabetes. What do you think is the biggest change that you're like super grateful for? I do wear a continuous glucose monitor tandem and I have a T-slim pump um, and one talks to the other. Yep. And so my A1Cs have been better than ever. I will say that. I do think that that makes our lives our, for type one diabetics easier and better. For a little while, I was hating all the supplies that go with the T-Slim pump. The, oh my God, there's just all this stuff that you know you got to do. And I was, before that, I was a Medtronic user. I was on Medtronic pump since the year 2000. So for almost, for more than 20 years, I was using a Medtronic pump and they were simpler to fill. The battery that you stuck in there lasted for like 30 days. Whereas with the T-Slim pump, it, like it doesn't have a battery, so you got to charge it. 
So you got to make sure you know which chord goes with it because I have a million chords. One for the scale, one for the pump, one for the phone, one for the headphones, one for the wireless speaker, blah, blah. <laughs> I mean, it just goes on and on and on, you know? And like I open up the drawer in the bathroom and I'm like, oh, one for the little razor. <laughs> so you're like, I mean, you spend more time just trying to fit which one is supposed to go in there as opposed to just simply sticking in a battery, knowing the battery's going to work, closing it up, and it, you're good to go for 30 days, you know, which actually, I will also say, really comes in handy if you're traveling. You know, and if you're somewhere where you don't have access to an outlet, mm-hmm. you know, if you're in a jungle in Africa, and you don't have access to an outlet, then you can't use the T-Slim pump and you have to go back to syringes. Yeah, that's a really good point. The other thing about the Medtronics that I loved is that they were indestructible. I was on the Medtronics from 2002 to 2017. All uh-huh. of them were basically indestructible. And then I got the Tandem T-Slim and now I have that one. And I've had to have that one replaced four or five times just in the few years I've had it. So what do you think about all the paraphernalia that goes with that, with the syringe that you suck out the air from the cartridge and then you go to the bottle and you, I mean, right. It's a lot of work. Yeah. It's a lot, a lot compared to filling up the the Medtronic, like the old indestructible ones. I don't know how they do it with the, like the new Medtronics now, but when I first watched my friend fill the T-Slim cartridge, I was watching her at at like a, a diabetes camp. She was just doing it during lunch. And I was like, that seems like way too many steps for something that's literally just drawing insulin into an extra vial. <laughs> right? What made you change? I couldn't tran I couldn't go any further up on the Medtronic pumps without going to the Medtronic sensor and I did not want to switch from the Dexcom to the Medtronic sensor. Oh, uh, so you already had the Dexcom. Yeah, I started the Dexcom in 20 2015, 2015 and I was a late adopter to CGM and by uh-huh. then I was like Okay, I have the I have the Dexcom. This is before the the Medtronic sensor came out, or before I even knew about the Medtronic sensor, and I didn't didn't want to experience the harpoon. So, yeah, yeah. Okay, so with all of this experience with type one diabetes, was there any any time was there any moment where you felt like you were burned out on the disease? Not until I retired. Tell me more. <laughs> well, okay, because when I worked. I was busy and I didn't, and I will say that it was the greatest distraction in my life to keep me from feeling sorry for myself when I couldn't see. I mean, in my early twenties, I had already developed retinopathy. And, and so, you know, in, I could be driving a car before I had a cell phone and all of a sudden my eyes would start bleeding and I couldn't see enough to go any further and I'd have to pull over to the side of the road and wait for someone to help me, you know, put the flashers on and just rely on the goodness of a stranger to knock on my window and say, Hey, can I help you? You know, what's going on? And that happened to me once the very first time that my eyes were bleeding and I noticed it, I was in a car with Cynthia Raleigh. Do you know who that is? No. Fashion designer. Cool. And we were driving to New York. I'm like, do we need a map? She's like, no, just go east. I'm <laughs> like, okay. 
But 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 on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, when there were trucks coming at me in the other direction, I could see like these spider webs and these lines from which I didn't really realize it, but they were in the back of my eye. It was the blood leaking and it would stick to the vitreous gel. And that was the beginning of what was then to become a four-year battle with retinopathy. And I mean, I had a lot of laser work. I did have actual surgeries and I was able to save the vision in one eye. And for all those years later, I could see with one eye and drive a car and and scratch up one side because I couldn't judge distance and run over little old ladies. No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but so that was the first thing. And after I kind of finished that battle a year later, I was told I needed a kidney transplant. Oh, geez. And oh my God, the worst part of that was the waiting. The wait, because you, just because your kidney numbers labs were not good, didn't mean that they were going to give you a kidney two weeks later. It meant that they had to wait for your kidneys to totally fail before they would consider doing a transplant. Before they would consider it? Before, well, before they would do it, before they would actually do it. So everyone in my family was tested. My sister and my brother were the best donors for me at the time, but we decided as a family that, you know, one day, I mean, if one of their children needed the kidney from their parent, I didn't, I, I didn't want to be, you know, I didn't want them to not be able to get that. Right. And so our decision was that my mother was going to be my donor. Wow. She was, 50 years old, and 35 years later, I still have that kidney. Wow. And again, as when I was a kid, I was told I wasn't going to live to be 40. Well, when we were in the hospital learning about everything you needed to know about a kidney transplant, I was told that it would last 12 to 15 years. Wow. I mean, it's right. kind of gone beyond <laughs> those actual people that did the actuarials on all of that really didn't know what they were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> like lick their yeah, fingers, the stick it in the wind, thing, pick a number. <laughs> right. The other thing is that women are better at keeping a transplanted organ than men. The longevity of it. Oh, they. Okay. The statistics are that a transplanted kidney kidney in a woman will last longer than a transplanted kidney in a man. Because I keep asking, the University of Minnesota did my transplant. And every year they call and they ask me all these questions. And I'm like, well, I got some questions for you. I'm like, okay. I'm like, what is the history of your hospital and who had the kidney the longest? And they're like, oh, we can't tell you that. I'm like, you know, HIPAA laws. Oh. I, I mean, I don't want the name. I just want the statistic. Right. But I'm not getting it. <laughs> but I have friends who are doctors who have, who have told me. So is 35 years kind of a record or is that like on the long end of having a... a it's on the long end. It's not a record, but it is on the long end. Now, some of my doctors here in Chicago at the Northwestern University, they're like, you should be in the record book. But it's... 
because of all the other complications that I have also endured, some which should have killed me. Maybe the kidney transplant should have killed me back then. In fact, I met a girl at the hospital at that time who had a kidney and a pancreas transplant. And they asked me, do you want a pancreas while you're getting a kidney? I'm like, what are, what, what are the, the results of, of that? And they're like, well, we really don't have a history on that at all because they're brand new. And at the time I went for the kidney transplant, it was like 60% odds it would work and 40% odds that it would fail. Wow. And you're supposed to feel good about that, you know? But they didn't have those statistics yet for a pancreas. So I'm like, you know what? No, thanks. <laughs> just take the kidney and go. I was used to taking shots already. And it just seemed like like I could continue living that way. Okay. So all of those health complications, we've mentioned the, the kidney transplant and the retinopathy who caused blindness for four years that you thankfully have gotten over mostly. What uh-huh. are the other ones? Well, I had heart disease, or I've okay. got heart disease. That came shortly after I had my first heart attack by the time I was 30. How many heart attacks total? I didn't feel it, though. How many heart attacks total? What they call a silent heart attack. You don't feel them. You just have them. That's the best kind to have. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to have a heart attack, like, you don't want to feel work, it, really. Though? And that comes, I mean, as a diabetic, we lose our ability to feel Things are, are, you know, we lose the sense of touching our feet and going up our legs. Well, you also learn lose it with internal organs. Great. So the, the heart being one of them, your fingertips, yeah, all kinds of places. So, so I had that, and then I my biggest battle was fighting osteomyelitis and cellulitis. Cellulitis is an infection or bacteria in the skin and osteomyelitis is that infection in the bone. Oh. And that is typically what causes a diabetic to require an amputation. And after fighting that for almost 20 years, I did have to have my leg chopped off in 2012. Which one? My left, like my whole left side is my side i'm deaf in my ear on the left side <laughs> we'll bleep it <laughs> my left ear i'm deaf in that i'm blind in my left eye i'm missing my kidney on the left side and now part of my leg okay i'm like they should put me on a table saw cut me down the middle and grow a new side to me or something <laughs> like they did those sheep in scotland <laughs> Okay, so with with all of these complications, these Uh health issues that you've had, how did you manage to run your own business, which was interior design, and you were blind for part of that? How did you do that? For four years. You know what? I was really lucky because I always had great people surrounding me in my office environment. And, I mean, they made up for the things that I could not do without telling people what was wrong with me because who wants to hire a blind interior designer? Probably nobody. And even when I went to have my kidney transplant, I had just before I left, went to this really important interview for an enormous job. And I couldn't say to them, well, 
in January, I'm going to the hospital. I'm going to have a kidney transplant. The odds are 60-40. Maybe it's going to work. Maybe it's not going to work. Maybe I'm going to die on the table. Can you wait? You know? <laughs> so instead, I said to them, January, I take my winter vacation, my winter holiday. I go to Acapulco every year, which was true. I did. And could we start as soon as I get back? And they're like, you know what? That's fine because we go away. We go to Palm Springs in the winter. So we're not going to be here either. And it, it never entered my mind that that transplant was not going to work. And I came back and I'm on all these drugs and I've got like chick bump cheeks from them. <laughs> but I did have a tan because before I checked into the hospital, I went to a tanning bed in <laughs> Minnesota to make sure that my story was going to be believable. And I came back and I did this job for this couple, which ended up being for a family and they were repeat customers of mine for years. Wow. Yeah. So you I don't know. have to tell the whole truth. <laughs> it's a, it's a big wow. Well, you know, when you're running a business being self-employed as I was, is the closest thing to being unemployed. You never know where your next job is going to come from. You don't know if it's going to be big enough to pay your rent and your staff and their taxes and insurance and your accountant and your lawyer and your publicist. And I mean, it goes on and on and on and on and on. So you just keep going and you don't say to it. I was better at listening to them than talking about me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, I've heard that before though, that if you want to be perceived as interesting be interested in the other person. Absolutely. That's really good advice. So I'm quiet most of the time. So I <laughs> Okay. So with your interior design business, did you ever have one or two maybe favorite designs that you can just pick out of memory and talk about? Yes. Okay. I had two. One was a home that I did in the city of Chicago. A client of mine had purchased a house that had just been remodeled by the former owners. Oh. And he was like, you know what? It needs a breakfast room. The house did not have a breakfast room. And I want to cut the kitchen. And then we need furniture for everything. And I thought, oh, okay, that's going to be a nice job, you know? For a year, I spent doing drawings and renderings and elevations and all this stuff. He really didn't grasp the concept of what we were trying to create for him. And so I said, you know what? We're just going to start. And at the point where the framing is up, if you don't like something, we can change it. It took seven years for me to finish the job for this man before he could move in. But in that time, we dug out the basement so that there would be higher ceilings. We totally moved the staircase locations in the house, I created a staircase that took 18 months for someone to hand carve all the newel posts and hand rail. We put an elevator in the house. We added two stories. The elevator made seven stops. And then all the sidewalks were heated. He never had to shovel the snow. And on the roof of the garage, there was a waterfall that spit 300 gallons of water per minute into a lily pond in the backyard. And in the lily pond were frogs that spit water back into the lily pond. I mean, 
it was my client was like a modern day Medici. Do you know who the Medici's were? No. They 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 built Florence, and they. Oh. Okay. I, I mean, they you, you know one of the most beautiful cities on the planet, and and they are very responsible for making it be all that. Okay. More artwork there than in many other museums around the world, or or cities, I should say. What about the so second house? You, the second house was in Africa, and it was in cool. Lagos, Nigeria. It was on a, a two-acre parcel of land that was between the French embassy on one side and the ambassador from Great Britain on the other. So it was a very tony piece of land. There were two houses on these two acres that we totally tore down and hauled away and then built a new complex, a new estate for my client with with rooms for 25 bodyguards. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Oh, You're catching cool. flies. <laughs> right? And it was 40,000 square feet under roof. And I did the drawings from the ground up, all the site plans, everything, in all the interior elevations, the exterior, the gardening, the landscaping, all of it. There was an underground diesel tank that powered the uh, generators because electricity would go out like, three or four times a day and water purification plant. I mean, all of that just on the grounds of this house that I did. And so much of that for me, I had never done before. So I was intrigued by the challenges of where does this go so that it's not part of the perspectives that people would see when they were, in the gardens in the front or in the gardens in the back or in the conference center or, or, or whatever. So yeah, that That's was amazing. my, and, and that particular client is actually running for president of Nigeria right now. <laughs> so those were my two, I have, you know what? I loved so many of the jobs that I did, but those two really stick out for all of the challenges. And I mean, it was a totally different culture working in Africa. And every time we got off the plane, we were met by bodyguards carrying AK-47s. I mean, it was like being in a James Bond movie. But that's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) It was pretty awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Tell our audience about your book, who it's for, what it focuses on, and where they can find it. My book is called The Candy in My Pocket. I thought that type 1 diabetics could relate to that title. My first editor did not like it at all, but she wasn't diabetic and she didn't understand it. And so, so we parted ways. Who is it for? It's not for really young kids because there is a lot of scenarios that involve doctors and operating rooms and, and whatever. And I'm not so sure that they necessarily need to be exposed to that. But what I wanted was really for parents or or people with type 1 diabetes, but who are already in their 20s and up, to see that even if you have to go through all of these circumstances, there's still a way out. And it's not the end of the world. And 
you just have to get back out there and keep on living. Yeah. Where can people find it? Uh, the book is available on order at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Book Depository, even Walmart. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I know. Get it into Walmart. <laughs> well, you have to order it. None of them are stocking it. So it's a book that needs to be ordered and it takes a week to 10 days. Okay. That makes sense. I also have a book out and it takes forever to get my author copies. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Like, well, did you ship any slower? <laughs> right. Exactly. I can relate. Yeah. Do you have an actionable tip that our listeners can, can implement today to improve their life with type one diabetes? Don't eat the chocolate chip cookies, even if they're broken. <laughs> <laughs> really my my best advice is to not give up but to take one day at a time every day is a gift for everyone not just for us there are all kinds of people that and it's sometimes it's hard to fathom that are worse off than we are and we're so fortunate in this day and age that the technology has gotten us to where we are today and it's only getting better. You know, now there's that new insulin that is inhaled through your nose and it immediately is absorbed into your body. And I am actually, when I see my endocrinologist next, going to ask about that. Not having to stick yourself, not having to have the pump, all these things. I mean, I don't know all that's involved in all that we can give up. But but it's a step closer to really making our lives as good as it can be. The only thing better than that would be stem cell transplants, which are causing pancreas to regenerate and, and produce insulin. And they're having really good results with that also. So 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 as I say, just don't give up. And the younger version, people like you, you guys are so lucky because you're going to see a cure in your futures. I hope so. Right? Yeah, me too. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you want to share with the audience? Oh, my God. Well, if I had three more hours, there's a whole bunch of things. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just tell a short story? Sure. Really short. Okay. So there wasn't enough that I could do for my mother after she gave me a kidney. It was my second chance at life. And it's like, what what can I do now to make my life worthy of this of, of this gift that I've been given? I I've spent a ton of time working for a variety of charities, including Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. In fact, a portion of the profits, if one day there ever are profits, from the sale of my book will go to them. So I was always thinking in my mind, okay, what else can we do? What else can we do to make her? And she, she never wanted and she never expected. But I took her once to the Academy Awards, right? I know, it's a good story. <laughs> <So cool. laughs> and the night before, we went to dinner at Spago and my guests were the producers of Dumb and Dumber and Something About Mary and um, I had a friend who was like a, a small bit part actor who was in a bunch of films with Sean Penn and Charlie Sheen and 
Tim Hutton. And actually, Tim Hutton came with a girlfriend. Well, they were so busy making out at the other side of the table that it took them like an hour to come up for air. And when the two of them came up for air, my mother reaches the hand, her hand across the table to Tim's girlfriend. And she says to her, I'm sorry, dear. I didn't get your name. And, and the girl looks around the table and with the biggest smile I have ever seen on this person's face, she goes, hi, I'm Angie. And it was Angelina Jolie. <laughs> <laughs> And oh, when I whispered in my mom's ear that that's who it was and that she just won a Golden Globe for Gia, my mom's like, oh, my God, you know, <laughs> and everybody else is looking at her and laughing and Angie laughed. Oh, my God. It was it, it was so priceless. Then later she undressed someone at the table because they had tattoos and she wanted to see all the his tattoos, you know, took off his shirt, blah, blah, blah. And then she's like, well, you know, I have tattoos. And this friend of ours, he's like, you do? And she's like, yeah, would you like to see them? And he's like, uh, yeah. She undoes her pants <laughs> and pulls her pants down to, you know, that area. And there is in Latin her tattoo. And I forget now what the translation is, but it was the highlight of everyone's night. Not just my mother's, not just mine. I was honored that they were my guests at dinner. You never know what's around the next corner. And so don't give up because life could be that much fun. You know, if you, if you are open and receptive to that. Yeah. Okay, you are so full of stories. I could have you on for another entire episode just to talk about all these stories. (laughs) But in the meantime, where can people find you online? Oh, online. John, J-O-H-N, at thecandyinmypocket.com. That would probably be the best place. All right, we will link that in the show notes. John, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was great. All right, now it is your turn. Put yourself in John's shoes. How would you want to show up to your life if faced with the same things that John faced? Remember, you control your diabetes. It doesn't control you. Are you ready to feel better with type 1 diabetes without changing how you manage it? You too can go from resenting the highs and the lows to never again feeling like it's dragging your emotions behind the worst roller coaster ever. It starts with a free call. Ready to live your life without worrying about what your CGM says? Head to inspiredforward.com slash coaching to get started.